Today on the Disruptive Voices of the Pacific, we are going to be hearing another story. Now this platform, it exists to tell your stories, to bring to light some of the things that maybe you have carried for many years, that as a culture and a society in the Pacific that we have kept silent um, and hidden in shame. We are about disrupting a lot of those issues around abuse, around pornography and around those things that we just prefer to keep hidden. So today I have another very special guest, a woman who contacted me and was keen to tell her story and when I heard some of it, uh, I thought again, this is another story that I know is going to help many people. So welcome to you, Vani. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, now you're actually in Samoa, so um, we are stepping outside the borders of Fiji. Um, but your dad is Fijian and your mum is Samoan. But um, maybe just tell us a little bit more about your family and your background. So, hi everyone. My name is Shivani. I usually go by Vani. Uh, my dad is Fiji Indian and my mom is Samoan. So, growing up, I had a mix of the two different cultures and I think for my experience, it was a it was a hard experience, um, just being a mixed child uh, with my father's family, with my mother's family. Uh, for two years, we spent two years in Fiji. Uh, growing up, I went to primary school in Lotoka. And um, later on, we moved uh, due to my dad's job that he had in uh, Saudi Arabia. So... At that time, we were going back and forth between Australia and Saudi Arabia. And uh, when I was 13, in 2008, that's when we moved to Samoa, my first time. And I've been in Samoa ever since. So that's a little bit about how I grew up, where I grew up, and my ethnic background. You're a real uh, international child, which would have given you a lot of insights uh, into the world and other cultures as well. Um, now, unfortunately, your growing up also consisted of a fair amount of violence um, that you experienced growing up. Can you explain some of that to us? That is true. So I grew up uh, in a very violent family. There was a lot of domestic abuse, and um, I grew up watching uh, my dad uh, beat my mom daily, uh, just the abusive words, um, different ways that Uh, you could see the violence in the family. And it was something that really, um, I would say it it weighed heavy on me as the eldest child. I'm the eldest of four girls. And at the time, you know, I was a young child, didn't really know um, anything different from that. So for me as a child, I believed that that was normal. That was what normal relationships, normal marriages looked like. And it wasn't until I was much older where I had to go through and process the trauma and process um, the different mindsets that I had taken on as a child because of that. So as a young child, being in an environment where there was um, constant abuse, even though you thought it was normal, did it have other impacts on you? Yes, I feel like as a young woman, as a girl at that time, uh, when you don't feel that love, and that safety at home, you tend to go looking for it in other places. And I think that's what happened for me. Maybe it's different with other young girls in the same situation. But for me, I went looking for love in other places. And what that looked like for me was um, looking for love in relationships, even at a very young age, uh, becoming sexually active at such a young age. And 
the root of it was wanting that affirmation, wanting that sense of belonging. So when I was 15, I fell pregnant with my first child after a series of uh, relationships that I was um, in at the time. And I ended up getting married at 16. Uh, it's something that is um, culturally here in Samoa. If you have a child out of wedlock, it's kind of expected that you would settle down with the father of the child. And that's what I decided to do. I wasn't forced into it. Um, my my mom, she was not for it, but for me at that age, 16 years old, thinking that this is the only person that's ever going to want me, yeah, I decided to get married and um, stayed with uh, the father of my, my children, so. Yeah. yeah. Wow, okay, you've just mentioned so much in that um, little paragraph, which I want to unpack some of those things. So yes, you're um, growing up in a home where there wasn't a lot of love, you went searching, uh, your parents did, before you got pregnant, they did actually separate. What what age were you then? Yes. So I was, I believe I was 13. That was the same year that we did come to Samoa. Uh, my dad had, uh, he just didn't really like it here in Samoa for whatever reason. And he wanted us to move back to Fiji to be with his family. But at the time, my mom, she had had enough of just, you know, the abuse and after 21 years together. So she decided not to go to Fiji with him and I stayed with her and he took my three younger sisters with him. So were you relieved at that point that they were separated or were you sad? What were you feeling as a young 13-year-old girl? So it was different for me and my younger sisters. For me, I was relieved because I think I was a little bit older and I, I kind of understood that uh, this is not a good environment for my mom, for her own health and safety and well-being and even for us. Uh, but my younger sister, my second sister, she she really took it hard and she, she really wanted my parents to get back together. Um, but at that age, I think she was 10 at the time, she didn't really... I see that, you know, my mom, for her own safety, wanted to get out of that relationship. Yeah, so mixed feelings in the family there. Um, but it must have been nice to, it would have been a bit more of a peaceful home after that. Or were you living with the whole village again? So my extended family here in Samoa and the village that we live in, it's interesting because they're one of the few families that, the majority of our extended family have all moved overseas. The majority of them live in New Zealand. So it was just me and my mom at home at the time. And um, for a period of three years, my dad being upset as he was with my mom not coming, uh, he didn't allow us to speak or have any contact with my younger sisters for about three years. We didn't know how they were, where they were, where they were living. We didn't know anything until three years later, after a lot of prayer and going to the Lord with it, uh, he called and he let them talk to us on the phone. Do you um, talk to them regularly now? So now my second sister, she lives in New Zealand. She's a dentist and she's married and having her first child. So I get to talk to her regularly. And my other two younger sisters, they live with me here in Samoa now. So now it's just my dad who's living alone in Fiji. So... Um, you know, you mentioned becoming sexually promiscuous in your teenage years, looking for love. 
We've been discussing a little bit on this podcast about the lack of sex education that's come from our families. Did you? What did your parents ever teach you about sex growing up? So I think I had two different extremes because my dad is a scientist, so he, from a young age, he would kind of teach us like the technical aspects of everything, how it worked. And then my mom being a very typical traditional someone mom she wouldn't tell us anything and she (laughs) refrained from explaining like anything to do with that so I think for me whatever I had learned I learned it from school from other children and from the internet and I think that is why I didn't have um, I didn't really know that you know unprotected sex you could get pregnant on the first time. So uh, what you learnt from the internet in school wasn't terribly helpful either, by the sounds of it. No, it wasn't. I think uh, school does well by teaching you the technical part, but uh, I think there's a lot more to sex education that young people need rather than just the science of what goes where. Yeah, and that's a good part of it, but it is the whole, and especially um, as Christians, what God plans for us is important too. So you mentioned, yes, you found yourself pregnant at 15, married at 16. Um, so I didn't even know that was legally acceptable, but it is in Samoa, married at 16. Uh, you, you just need to get parental consent. So my mum, she signed off on the certificate. Okay. So talk to us a bit more again, because I've heard quite a few Fijians um, who found themselves in a similar situation and they felt like they had to marry the first person they had sex with, which I think is a big reason why we have this issue of abuse in the nation. Um, So tell us a bit more about the expectations that you felt, even though your mum didn't agree with it, but what were you feeling from other people? Well, I mean, I was 16 and I had my first child, and I think at that point, for, I, for whatever reason, I believed that nobody would ever want me. Nobody would ever want to be with me and that I really didn't have any other future other than uh, this person that I was with. And a lot of people had also told me that, you know, your life's over. There's not really much you can do now. You can't really go back to school. You can't really go and work. Like, you've got a baby, so this is it. And I believed that. And that's part of why, though my mom didn't approve, I pushed for it because I really felt like that's the only option I had, which was not true. No, and it's not true, but I can understand why, because it's on top of growing up, feeling like you haven't been loved um, or, yeah, just haven't experienced that love. Um, And so you're still searching, aren't you? And here's, here's a man who's come into your life. Um, And so these are things that many teenage girls struggle with. But I just want to look into the camera because I had last week a young woman write to me and she was told that having sex before marriage was the unpardonable sin. (laughs) And I, again, we just need to break down these lies because Jesus Christ has died for these things. There is nothing in our life that he can't redeem, he can't restore. So no matter what mistake that you feel like you have made, there is hope. Run to Jesus, confess and repent and find uh, the hope and the healing that you can through him. Because, uh, Vani, I think there's so many lies that the culture throws at us that we're dealing with and the church perpetuate as well. 
telling us that we've messed up and that we're no good and no one's going to love us. So this is not the message of the gospel or Jesus Christ. So thank goodness you've found that now. Um, however, so you marry this guy at 16. I mean, you're, you're, you hardly know who you are, let alone him. <laughs> um, you, you've grown up thinking, did you still think abuse was normal at this point? I think something that I always go back to is that when you have a distorted view of what love looks like, you will, you will take anything. And I believed that at the time I knew domestic violence is bad. You know, I knew that I don't deserve this, but because it was going on in all the relationships within my family and within even my village, and it's quite normal in Samoa because that was the norm, the norm. I thought that it was just something that everyone goes through. Mm. Yep. And this is, you know, only 10 years ago, which, because you're only 27 now, so it's not yeah. back in the dark ages. Um, and this is why we speak up because it's not normal. It's not normal. It's not right. So you marry at 16 um, and then you have three children in five years <laughs> to your now husband. So you find yourself um, at the age of 21 with four kids, um, but then this man starts to be violent towards you. Did, when did that start in the marriage? Well, I'm sad to say that it started before we were even married. But because I didn't, I didn't think that I didn't think that I deserved better. I settled for it. And though he was violent with me, there were red flags before we got married. Um, I decided to just brush it under the carpet and hope that maybe one day it would go away. And five years down the line, it didn't go away. It just got worse. What were some of those red flags? Can you tell us looking back now? I think looking back now, it's uh, the man- the manipulation and uh, having no freedom of choice. Uh, he didn't like me making my own decisions. He wanted me to, um, for every decision to go through him first. Uh, I didn't really have much freedom to um, speak or do the kind of things that I wanted to do. It had to be on his terms, um, even down to like, the way the kids were fed, the time they were fed, the amount of money that I could spend and things like that, like really controlling. Um, But I saw that controlling and, you know, um, the gaslighting before we had the children. Was he a lot older than you? I think he was, oh, he was nine years older than me. Okay. That's another red flag. (laughs) It is. <laughs> yeah, so you're you're 15 and pregnant and he's 24. Yeah, that's a big problem. Yeah. Man, wow, okay. Yep. <laughs> so um, that was a shock. I didn't realise that one. Um, you've seen these red flags, but, I mean, even though you'd gone through it as a child, you know, you were still prepared to walk through it as an adult. I think because I saw my mom go through it, and my mom just take it. I thought, okay, maybe I'll survive this. 
maybe I'll come out of it and maybe it will change. Like maybe I won't have to go exactly the same as what my mom went through. But, you know, what I learned is that if you don't break the cycle of abuse, it will continue with the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important that we don't just put up with it because we are teaching our children um, and what's modelled to them does become normal, doesn't it? So what uh, what was the church? Were they helping you around this time or what were they saying to you? Well, I can say that uh, the church and the culture or the church and the village in Samoa are very interconnected. It's almost like the church and the village, everything um, happens. It's like happens together. So people in the village knew what was going on, um, which means that the people in the church in our village knew what was going on. But because it's so normal, no one really addresses it. Uh, And later on, I did uh, join a different church, and that's kind of where I started growing in the Lord. Um, And people had heard rumors and things that were going on in my house. Um, but I can say the few people that did talk to me told me that I needed to submit better or that maybe I was talking too much, uh, basically putting the blame on me that it was my contribution that is causing this. Um, and in those, in those moments, I would have really, really wanted help or at least someone to give me clarity because I think I was also deceived in thinking that biblical submission is taking taking the abuse. But nobody ever told me otherwise. They just told me to submit. Hmm. No, it makes me furious, as people know. <laughs> and that's spiritual. They're adding to the abuse through spiritual abuse because they're twisting uh, a scripture. And they're not... Did anyone talk to him and say, come on, mate, this is not how you act? No one ever said anything either from the church or from the village. So he's um, committing a crime, which the church covers up and blames the woman. Um, You know, to me, this is incredibly evil, which, um, again, why we do this podcast to expose it. So, um, yeah, it's not good. So what was the um, final straw for you? You mentioned that one day he was chasing you around. What, what, what was that that really kind of woke you up? So as much as I wanted to leave the relationship during those five years, I couldn't really because we were living in my family, in my family's cultural land. So it's not like I could go anywhere. I didn't have anywhere to go. That was my family's land and that was my home. So the final straw from from him that I, I, I knew that I needed to do something was um, this day that I think I had burnt, um, like I was cooking food in the outside fire and I had burnt the food because the flame was too hot. And at the time I was pregnant with the fourth child. So he got angry at me for burning the, the onions at the bottom of the pot and he got the bush knife. In Samoa, we call it the sapelu. 
the bush knife and he chased me around my house with the knife and told me or was yelling in Samoan that he was going to cut my head off. And I was so scared and I really thought I was going to die that day. And that was the only day where I saw my neighbors, they decided to step in and they called the police. But um, before then, um, as long as it goes on inside your house, everyone will kind of just let yeah. you deal with your own personal family issue. But uh, when they saw me, be running around outside onto the main road then they called the police had you ever wanted to call the police before that or it just never crossed your mind I wanted to but then came the issue that I would have to press charges for them to be able to legally do anything and I didn't have the strength or the confidence or even the boldness to do that I think the issue as well was that both of us were from the same village. So even if I did press charges, I have his whole extended family to think about. And that's probably why it's taken me so long to say and give the story because I was also mindful of them and knowing that they would also lose face. Yeah, and that's where our families are messed up, that we're, again, willing to protect our sons who are beating our women. Um, families have got to expect better. Um, yeah, wow. So eventually, though, he left. He left um, after five years. Where did he go to? So I believe that the Lord really worked it out for me. So what happened was um, in Samoa, when you're given a chief title, Usually it comes with um, land. So he was given a chief title around that time. Uh, his family had um, the cultural ceremony where they give out the titles. And they came with a piece of land that um, further inland to where we live or where we lived at the time. And he was going every day to build a house, um, just like a small Samoan fale. And... Uh, at the time, I told him that I didn't want to come and live there with him because I had just given birth and I needed to be near my mom while the baby was still a newborn. Uh, but really, the real reason is I knew that if I went there and it was just me and him, I would eventually die. Like, I wouldn't survive. So uh, after a couple of months of him going up and down between the houses, eventually he just didn't come back. And um, I heard from other people in the village that he was actually staying there with another woman from our village. And um, I was actually really happy because it finally meant that I was free. Are you divorced now? Yes, now. <laughs> you got a divorce. Yeah, wow. Yes, well, thank God for um, <laughs> sending him away. Um, and then suddenly you find yourself, well, you're happily a single mother, but four young children. You've dropped out of school, so no school certificate, no education, um, and you've got to look after the whole family. So what have you done now? Um, what are we, six years later, in the last six years, what have you done to support your family and get your life going? Yeah, so, I mean, I was a stay-at-home mom for five years, and then suddenly I had to find a way to provide for these four little children, 
And my youngest son, he was three months old at the time. So, you know, no school certificate and um, no experience. Uh, but what I, whatever I could do, which was um, some blogging that I did on the side that I was doing at home from my phone, um, I ended up applying for a job as a news reporter. And I didn't have the experience or the qualifications, but um, I just sent them the link of the stuff that I was writing. And they ended up giving me the job out of 77 people that applied. And I, I know that that was the Lord. Um, and then over the last five years, I did all different kinds of odd jobs. I was working two jobs, three jobs, having like different things, doing them on the side just so that I could make ends meet. And there were many times where I didn't have any money and we didn't have dinner at home. We didn't have three meals. We would have the one meal and try and spread it out through the whole day. But by the grace of God, I have gotten to a place where I am just really enjoying and really seeing the blessing of the Lord. So right now I work for a government ministry um, in a job that I really love. And I've gone back to school this year. I'm studying a diploma in communications um, with Massey University. And, you know, these are things that five years ago, I would have never dreamed that I could do them. The reason being because so many people told me I couldn't. So many people told me I, I couldn't go back to school. I couldn't get a good paying job. I couldn't do it alone. But I can tell you, if you put your mind to it, you really can. Absolutely. So your life's not, even with four children and being a single mum, your life is not over. <laughs> um, now, just as we end, you grew up a Hindu, um, so... You're not your, um, you grew up a Hindu, a totally different religion. So where did you meet and encounter Jesus? So I grew up Hindu and uh, when, I, when I'm in Fiji and I, and I see, you know, the Hindu temples and all the little temples that they have outside the houses, it brings back a lot of memories because my dad is also a Hindu priest. He's a pundit. And um, I didn't meet Jesus until I went to Samoa in 2008. Um, but it was around 2010 where someone invited me to church. And um, after growing up the way I grew up, at the time I had just given up on the idea of God because I had concluded if there was a God, I don't think he would have let me live like this or be in this kind of environment. But anyway, 2010, someone invited me to church uh, this church is a, a quite a large church in Samoa. They had something called a Holy Ghost service. And that was the first time I had met the Holy Spirit. And I just knew that whoever this Jesus was, that he has got to be real because I've never encountered anyone like him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over the years, I've uh, just been able to really walk in whatever call and plan that God has for me and just meeting Jesus then has changed my life. So what would you like to say as we end to women who are caught in uh, relationships where they don't feel like there's any way out? Um, what hope would you like to give them today? Well, firstly, if you feel like there's no way out, Jesus is the way out. And there's always a way out. And I also want you to know that even if people have told you that you won't make it, that your past will hold you back, that your mistakes will hold you back. 
that is a lie from hell you can do whatever you want to do and put your heart and your mind to it as you also have that relationship with the lord he gives you the grace and he gives you the ability to do things that you could have not even dreamed of and if you're in a relationship similar to the one that i was in i want you to know that uh Biblical submission is not submitting to abuse that is deception that's not true and that a god who would die for you a man who would die for you you know Jesus if Jesus died for you um that means you are loved beyond so much more than what you are you know being um subject to if you're in an abusive relationship thank you so much for sharing your story and your journey um and just for fighting for your children and for your future and you're still so young and so much is before you Vani so we wish you all the best and may your voice just set many other men and women free in Jesus name amen easily i see your suffering i see Yeah.